0: Politics Guys, I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Dr. Bob Pendleton, Chief Medical Officer at University of Utah Health. We'll be talking about the school's recently released Value in Healthcare Survey, which asked patients, doctors, and employers across the country about their perceptions of value in healthcare and how they prioritize quality, service, and cost of healthcare services. Dr. Pendleton, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be with you.
0: You know, to start with, can you talk a little bit about how this survey came about and why you decided to focus on value?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think the the back story is... Um, the national conversation around the the total cost of healthcare in the United States. You know, currently we spend one in every five dollars in our entire economy spent on healthcare. And part of the conversation nationally to to start to deal with that has been moving what is the tagline is moving from volume to value, where value has now become probably one of the most overused uh, terms in healthcare and largely has been driven um, as political propaganda, being driven by policymakers and special interest groups. And when we reflected on what value really means, we felt that three critical voices have been really um, not heard loudly enough. And those are simply those who receive care, those who provide care, and those who pay for care. So our patients, doctors, and employers And our sense was that those three voices may not be aligned. And if we didn't give those three uh, critical voices sort of a stage and a platform, we never will be able to come uh, to really a shared vision uh, as a country on what we really mean by this transition to value-based care.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You know, I wanted to ask you about that term, value. It seems, I think, can mean a lot of different things to different people. And I'm wondering... How you conceptualized or defined it, kind of going into going into this.
1: Yeah, it is one of the problems, isn't it, that it has become you know vague and really ill defined. Um, one of the, I think, one of the most um, interesting voices has been from Michael Porter, a professor at Harvard Business School, who has popularized the definition of health outcomes achieved per dollar spent over a full episode of care, and and as an example, if um, a patient has uh, problems with their hip and they need a hip replacement, that Michael Porter's definition would be that we really should be thinking about what are the outcomes achieved from that hip replacement, and then how much does it cost from the very first visit we have at the doctor's office until we're fully recovered. For us, um, we agree largely with that definition, but also have felt that um, one of the missing elements of of that definition is uh, really the voice of our patients. And, you know, patients, we bring another dimension to this where there are things like accessibility and convenience of healthcare care carries um, another, you know, layer of importance and so we define it as outcomes and service per dollar spent
0: okay now now in looking at uh, how uh, patients versus physicians answered some of the survey questions one thing that really stood out to me was this idea of quality it was it was the most important component both for physicians and patients but there was a big gap i mean 88% of physicians gave that response but for patients it was Sixty-two percent, still a majority, but but a twenty-six percent difference, and, I, and I'm wondering, what do you think accounts for that?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know, for providers, I think it reflects the sort of the altruistic nature of doctors and sort of viewing you know their role as making patients better. But for patients, I actually think that reality represents, um, or that gap represents, our patients' reality, and you know, patients have an increasing cost burden, you know, more and more patients are on high deductible health plans. Um, those who are even on normal um, sort of typical health plans are paying more and more out-of-pocket costs for medications, tests, and treatment. And so this um, financial burden for patients is problematic. You know, patients um, may not value getting um, uh, better quality of care, if it's at the cost of losing their car or their house, as an example, and you know, healthcare expenses is still the number one uh, reason for personal bankruptcy in the United States. So I think for patients, that gap reflects their their reality. know, um, in another dimension, for patients, uh, it's easy for doctors to say, "Well, take the day off of work <laughs> and drive to see me in clinic and wait." and, um, you know, we'll take our time and, and get you taken care of. But, but for a patient, there's an enormous and I think increasing burden on, on actually being able to do that. So again, I think these other things in terms of accessibility, convenience, and cost are, are the reality of, of most patients who are just trying to juggle everything in their very busy lives.
0: Yeah, you know, ab- absolutely. That, that's an unfortunate reality, I think. You know, I, I, I wonder, you know, in most markets for goods or services. Uh, Cost is a huge consideration, obviously, both for consumers and for providers. Uh, But in the survey, I noticed only 5% of physicians said that cost was the most important component of value, and 26% of patients did. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what that result suggests to you.
1: I think there's an upside and a downside to that. that you know we do want our, our providers, those who deliver care, to have the outcomes of that care perhaps be the most important thing. But I think that, um, that the challenge is that focusing solely on quality and outcomes is is not enough. And you know, I think providers need to continue to evolve and put that altruistic priority on quality and outcomes in context for individual patients, because for patients, um, treatment decisions are a value proposition, and it is about weighing you know, one treatment option versus another, both in terms of impact on their health, but also their out-of-pocket costs. And as an example, um, providers may see a patient, say, with asthma. And they may have two options for inhalers for that patient. And they may know that one of those inhalers, the patient may have slightly better outcomes in terms of how their breathing is and their risk of needing to come to the hospitalization. But that slightly better um, outcome, which the doctor puts priority, may cost twice as much for the patient out of pocket. And so, we can prescribe that, but if we don't understand that the patient's not going to fill the medication because they can't afford it, then we're really working against ourselves. So I I do think that um, doctors prioritizing quality as the most important thing is a good thing, as long as we continue to equip both doctors and patients with the ability to talk about and put that quality in, ter- in context of costs.
0: Uh, That's that really interesting. It actually relates to a personal experience I had not too long ago. I went in to, for, for an eye exam and and got a prescription for some drops, and and the uh, the doctor said, well, I can prescribe this uh, non-generic. I think it's a little bit better, but you'll pay more, or this other one. and He gave me that option in which I really appreciate it. I ended up going for the more expensive one but it was nice that my I felt it was nice that my physician was aware of that and gave me that option you know get made me understand what my my choices were there
1: And and we make those value propositions in every part of our normal life outside of healthcare, right? If I buy a car, I decide whether I want to pay more for leather seats or upgrade the radio or have Bluetooth technology. Or if I buy a house, I decide whether I want that extra bathroom. So those value propositions we were used to making all the time. And so I think the survey, you know, that comes out pretty loudly by patients. They want healthcare, they want to be enabled in healthcare to be able to weigh those same value propositions, whereas providers, I think their voice to a large extent was they understand that, but they're still pretty grounded um, across the country in terms of a singular focus on on quality and and less so kind of um, the whole part of the value proposition.
0: Right. Now, now I noticed one group that was definitely very focused on cost was was employers. And that makes sense in a largely employer-based system where they're seeing a lot of those direct costs. I mean, in in the survey, the top two value statements that they gave were cost-related, both cost to their employees and cost to the company. So I'm guessing this didn't surprise you that much.
1: Yeah, not really. I mean, I think that um, we oftentimes forget that, you know, over half of our entire healthcare bill in the country is paid for by our employers. Um, you know, a typical uh, em- employer will spend an average of nine thousand dollars per employee per year on just healthcare coverage. So, cost is critical to employers, and and I think you know that some of the national conversation around that um, making a lot of our businesses less competitive in a global market. You know, there is some strong legitimacy to that with um, the cost of of healthcare that they're um, you know burdening.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there was another way that you got it concerns about cost in the survey was asking if people agreed with the statement uh, the overall cost of healthcare in this country is too high, and, and just about everyone agreed with that. It was eighty three percent of patients, eighty four percent of employers, and eighty nine percent of physicians. And it's that it's that physician number that surprised me a little bit you know, U.S. doctors earn on average around twice as much as doctors in other wealthy countries. And, But I'm guessing that despite this, doctors probably don't see their high salaries, at least comparatively speaking, as part of the problem. Or or, or do they? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's a great and, and insightful question. You know, so as the doctor side of me says, well, you know, of course we're not part of the problem. But I, I think that, um, you know, I think the doctor's Clearly, understand the global costs of healthcare are too high in the United States. Doctors also are the ones that really do see the inefficiencies in our fragmented healthcare system. That said, um, I think that doctors are much like every other player in the healthcare sector, where we think that the primary uh, uh, sort of uh, driver of higher costs is someone else, <laughs> whether that 's pharmaceutical whether that 's you know i t and tech companies, whether that 's hospitals and yeah, I think you know doctors are very much in that group as well, where you know we all agree that cost is a problem. we just point the finger in in a different direction and and the reality is there's there's um culpability across the board, and I think everyone sort of shares responsibility and ultimately. You know, long-term success in temporizing costs of healthcare in the United States are really we're going to going to require everyone to do their part, um, and yeah, including doctors.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now, one thing that, that some on on the right especially talk about is the costs of uh, what's called defensive medicine, uh, ordering you no know, more tests than you might necessarily need in order to protect yourself from a potential lawsuit. And I noticed in the survey that. Physicians indicated they're very concerned about ordering the right tests and the right labs. In fact, in the survey, it ranks even higher than the patient's overall or the patient's health improving. And I was wondering if you think that's due to uh, a concern about, about lawsuits.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. And there, there's clearly some evidence that would suggest that um, that that is a contributing factor um, and that it does weigh in, you know, doctors' decisions about test it, test ordering. That said, um, I think that there is a continued movement um, really led effectively by a number of national physician societies like, you know, the American College of Physicians and others trying to shift that frame of re- reference for doctors away from, worrying about medical legal liability and focusing much more sharply on um, both the harm that um, over-testing and over-utilization can cause. I mean, every test that we do has some risk to it, even something as simple as a a blood draw. And so there is a, a pretty strong movement about that we really need to be focusing on what's appropriate, what's the right thing to do for patients. Um, that gives them the best outcome, and then if we can factor costs into that as well then then again I think we're we're a long ways towards this value proposition but but I do think that there are certainly some providers in some areas um, where the concern of medical legal liability is a contributing factor
0: you know one thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, is you mentioned that every test has has a risk, and I think a lot of people maybe don't quite Grasp that idea, and at least what I'm, what I, when I hear you say that, I think in terms of uh, the cost of false positives. And is that one of the the big yeah. things that it, that is involved with that?
1: Absolutely. Um, the uh, The risk of false positives, and people say, "Well, what does that mean for me?" Well, you can imagine that if you're um, uh, a middle aged woman who undergoes a mammogram to screen for breast cancer and that the mammogram which is not a perfect test there is no such thing as a perfect test you know has some you know small area that's probably not cancer but it's a little hard to tell that could in turn lead to you know a biopsy that's unnecessary and even as far as surgery that's unnecessary and um, and so that false positive it 's not just the false positive, but it is the um, additional care that that leads to, which usually is more and more invasive, which then really carries true risks, things like infections and blood clots and other complications that um, are really uh, an important and potentially devastating part of care delivery so if we sort of Go upstream and make sure that we're we're not doing unnecessary tests in the first place. We can really mitigate most of that.
0: Right. Now, I've heard that another part of that sometimes is the, the fact that some of this uh, scanning uh, uh, machinery equipment is incredibly expensive. And so it's been said that, you know, if, if, uh, if a hospital or clinic buys, buys say, uh, an MRI machine, they, they want to use it to recoup the enormous costs of that sort of thing. Do you think there's something to that or is that, you know, somewhat overblown?
1: No, I think that, um, I I do think that there is a lot of legitimacy to that. Um, You know, a lot of these, it's easy to talk about kind of appropriateness and, and care decisions for patients, but most of the time, these decisions are not completely black and white, but rather some shade of gray in between. And so then the question becomes, when we have a payment system that incentivizes us to do more rather than to do less. If we're caught somewhere in the middle, which way do we lean? And there are a lot of uh, well-designed studies that, that I think pretty clearly say when we have a payment system that uh, incentivizes us to do more for these gray area decisions, we tend to lean that way and that that is very much a, a contributor to increased cost uh, in the United States.
0: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people want to sometimes look at this in terms of good guys and bad guys, but I but I think that idea of incentives is so critically important and when you look at where the incentives are stacked toward it, it only makes sense and it's not like people are necessarily trying to cheat or make money, you know, by doing unnecessary tests, but so much seems to push in that direction in the healthcare industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and clearly there are a few bad apples, you know, those get brought up every once in a while. But but that's really, those occasional bad apples are not where our opportunity is to to improve care and lower costs in healthcare. It is the global incentives for, for everyone on these sort of middle of the road decisions that patients and, and doctors struggle with, you know, day in and day out to, to try to navigate.
0: Right. You know, there was another result in the survey I found really striking. It's what you think would be the most important thing, at least what I would think would be the most important thing, getting better, uh, wasn't actually the top value statement for patients or physicians. I mean, phys- physicians rated it third below, uh, let's see, knowing and caring about patients and ordering the appropriate tests. But patients, patients rated it uh, amazingly eighth below things like location of the office and friendliness of the staff. I got to say that blew me away. Were you surprised at that?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I was surprised um, and disappointed, you know, as a physician and a chief quality officer who's trying to help people get better in both my, you know, patient care and my administrative roles. um, I, I thought that was really disheartening. And so then the question is, well, why is that? And Although our survey, you know, didn't get exactly at the why, um, you know, I think that it does get at this notion that we don't actually have um, a really good way to measure getting better. You know, we measure a lot of things in healthcare that we call quality, but most of those are really, you know, compliance with um, prescribing the right medication or ordering the right test. What we really need to move towards is is actually being able to measure getting better. And I'll give you an example. So, um, patients, you know, I mentioned earlier that um, gave an example of a patient undergoing a hip replacement. And currently, in in healthcare, if if I were to undergo a hip replacement, um, I would uh, my doctors would define quality by things like avoidance of major complications and whether i adhered to prescribing the right antibiotic around the time of surgery now for patients i don't know about you but those sound like my expectations not sort of envisioning what i really went and got my hip replacement for which is probably things like i want less pain and i want to be able to get back to golfing like i was you know a few years ago and until we actually measure those things, those things of getting better, and highlighting for patients that that's part of the value choices, that not all providers and not all procedures and tests will lead to the same actual outcomes. Um, Once we can measure that and give patient that information, um, that I think will be a powerful enabler for patients. And again, it may be that one doctor who does a hip replacement, the best Uh, getting better outcome I can have might be being able to walk down the street, whereas another, I might actually be able to run a marathon. And those would be powerfully informing distinctions for patients. But I think because we don't have that information, patients don't quite know what to even think about this. So there's this almost apathy and, um, and because of that, all of these other things uh became a bigger priority on the results of the survey. But it was absolutely disheartening to me and I think it's a real opportunity for us.
0: You know, because it seems to me that I mean, healthcare isn't something healthcare services, they aren't something you can sort of compare and contrast like you would say like a, like a like an Android and, and an iPhone or something like that. I mean, you know, when you you mentioned a hip replacement example, for instance, the first thing that came to mind for me was, well. Some people's hips are in worse shape, and some patients don't really do their a whole lot of their physical therapy. And there are a million little things, and boy, that just sounds like an incredibly difficult thing to try to sort through all of that stuff to try to develop some sort of apples to apples comparisons.
1: It, it it is, and you're, you're right. There's a lot of those, and historically, those nuances that you mentioned um, have paralyzed progress in this space. But one of the things I'm encouraged about is there are um, measurement systems that we call patient-reported outcomes that have evolved to the point that we are now able to account for most of those variables to actually create apple-to-apple comparisons. So the optimistic side of me says over the next five to 10 years, there's going to be that kind of meaningful information that patients can use to help make informed healthcare decisions. And so then my hope would be if we were to redo this survey 10 years from now, that that, um, that sort of a valuing of outcomes and getting better would uh, move up to be uh, the most important, if not one of the top one or two most important things.
0: Right. and And we... Correct me if I'm wrong, but we have pretty good uh, evidence that once we're able to make those sort of quality, uh, you know, quantify those sort of quality things, that that really matters. I'm thinking about didn't a few years back Medicare uh, change their policy in terms of uh, payment for readmissions for infections, I believe, and then the rate of infections dropped considerably once that became a, a once that became a, a factor. Is that is that is that am I remembering that correctly?
1: You are. And, you know, the the Medicare story is an interesting one. And there's a lot, I think, of lessons learned to do better in the next five to 10 years. And on one hand, having the information and creating transparency to allow um, hospitals and providers to know how they perform compared to others, that in of itself is motivation for improvement. On the flip side, if there's too much in the way of uh, financial penalties, the other thing that the Medicare story I think has taught us is, is that people will try to game the system. <laughs> and so there are a couple of recent studies on readmissions to say, well, gosh, maybe some of that benefit had more to do with people gaming the system than better care. But I think those are a really important policy insights that, um, you know, my hope is over the next five to 10 years, we can learn from and and do better in this space.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the the questions asked in the survey was whether U.S. healthcare is the best in the world. And I I guess I wasn't really surprised to see that just under half of patients felt that it it wasn't, but only 48% of physicians agreed that U.S. healthcare was the best in the world. And that did surprise me a little bit. Um, Why is that, do you think?
1: I think doctors see the um, the incredible fragmentation of our healthcare system that we really, um, you know, a typical patient doesn't just see, you know, a single doctor. They see, you know, a primary care doctor and maybe one or two specialists, and they might need to go to the emergency department or insta care and they get their medications filled at their pharmacy down the street, and I think doctors see that all of those um, important players in helping the patient get better are not well-coordinated and that that has negative consequences for our patient. So I think doctors, and, and I would say actually a lot of patients recognize that our strength in U.S. is what I call rescue care. So if I were to you know, get involved in a car accident on the interstate or you know, fall off a bridge or you know, have a, a heart attack, um, we we probably are the best in the world at you know those immediate life threatening situations in you know getting people to care quickly and in them providing amazingly effective care. It's everything else short of that that I think we can do better. And, and again, I think the doctors really see that in their day to day practices.
0: Now, now that issue of coordinated coordinated care. It seems to me that that kind of bumps right up against the patient's desire to be able to choose whatever physician they want. I mean, I know there are some systems who have had a certain amount of success with coordinated care, but I, I feel like it's been much more difficult to roll out on a large-scale basis because people want to be able to go to whatever doctor they happen to choose. Is that, is that fairly accurate, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that there is um, a consumer choice piece and I actually think that we don't we shouldn't need to take that away. Um because you know patients do have uh you know lots of things cost and convenience that, that really are important that I think we need to value. Um but there's also I think challenges in terms of um you know financial disincentives really to, to coordinate care. In other words no one in healthcare <laughs> gets paid more to ensure that, um, doctors communicate effectively with each other. And, you know, doctors, uh, at a hospital sends patients to a nursing home with a smooth transition that we currently have no sort of financial alignment to, to actually help with those transitions.
0: Right And that gets into right the heart of what some people say is the fundamental problem with our with our system in the United States is the fee for service nature of it as opposed to sort of a capitation type of system where you're focusing on on individual overall outcomes as opposed to ordering being paid by the number of tests or procedures, right?
1: yeah, I mean our our financial system um, incentivizes us to do more and um doesn't incentivizes um or really penalizes to um you know deal with the care gaps and transitions and better care parts, so I think until we we sort of reimagine that um and, and part of again the whole purpose of the survey was well, what are some of the things that are important for us to do that um because You know, again, without the voice of a patient, we might undervalue how important it is for a patient to have uh, an instacare clinic. You know, within a five-minute drive of their home. But if you don't, then patients will behave like consumers, and they're not going to drive 20 more minutes to go to an instacare if there is an emergency department five minutes from their home that might carry you know twice the cost. So that patient voice on things that are important to them. Is one of the reasons why, again, we really wanted to sort of help paint this picture of a sort of shared needs and understanding of, of how we need to think about healthcare improvement.
0: Yeah. Now, I, I want to end with what I think is maybe the most important question. I guess, um, where do we go from here? I mean, how do you think this information could potentially be useful to uh, to policymakers and decision makers in the healthcare sector?
1: I think um, for policymakers, um, my hope would be that um, this creates some tension and better definition of a path forward. And I'll, I'll give you an example. As a country, we are at a crossroads in my mind where the one certainty is we have to curb healthcare costs. And so we can do that in a couple of ways. Uh, We could have policies that are a blunt instrument where we just focus purely on the cost under the veil of value and don't worry so much about the things that the survey would say are important to patients and providers, which is accessibility, communication, coordination, better outcomes. Or the other policy path is, yeah, how do we take these collective voices and really reimagine a healthcare system that does temporize costs, but also brings these other equally important facets into the conversation? And then on a practical, I would hope that this survey drives some tension to say, that if we want patients and providers to have the kind of value proposition conversations, we need to equip them with the information and the tools to be able to do that. You know, even if most of our doctors wanted to have a conversation with a patient about one treatment option versus another, they may have no idea about the cost differences between those two. And until we enable providers and patients with that information, to have that as part of their conversation, then again, it's going to be hard to move forward. And I think that would be another sort of uh, outcome of the survey.
0: Absolutely. Let, let's hope so. More information and more transparency tend to, be, tend to be good things, for sure. And this, I think, is a step in that, in that uh, positive direction. All right. Well, with that, we will close. Dr. Bob Pendleton, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is a really big help to us and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you'd like to support the show without spending anything, it really does help if you get the word out by sharing this episode with your friends and followers or passing along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does really help. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com or through our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.